Hello and welcome to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Programme and nationally funded by Palliative Care Australia as part of the National Action Plan Project. My name is Lena Keneva. I'm a journalist and facilitator of this series. This is the second season of a further six episodes which will continue to focus on the experience of families whose children have died from a life-limiting condition. Family members bravely share the joys and sorrows of their experience with the hope that their voices can support, inform and better prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. This is episode six, Life After Loss, 10 years on. In this episode, we'll speak to a family who'll share their experience of grief and loss following the death of their child 10 years ago. They'll explore the ways their family has processed and adjusted over time and ways they continue to honour and remember their child. We'll hear each family member's experience of this loss, including the perspective of the child's sibling. Today with us, we have Mum Angela, Dad Jerry, and big sister Ella. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with us today. Natasha was diagnosed with bone cancer in 2010 and underwent extensive treatment and interventions. Sadly, Natasha, or Tash's condition, progressed and two years following her diagnosis in September 2012, she died at home with her family at the age of 16 years and nine months. Natasha's recent anniversary marked a decade, 10 years since her death. So having the whole family in here today, Angela, maybe start with you. Tell us about Tash and what she was like. Well, Tash had started life as a very shy and reserved child and what happened for her with our travels, because we travelled a lot as a family and lived in different countries, but in that process it gave her a chance to reinvent herself and she went from this child who wouldn't speak at assembly to someone who was running for vice president at the middle school council and winning that and really coming out of her shell. So by the time she was diagnosed, she was really a very confident young woman, well-travelled, highly articulate, and very interested in science. She was going to solve the world's energy crisis. That's what she wanted to do. So, And she was also, I think, a real sweetheart for us in our family. You know, just always thoughtful, uh, except when she had a spat with her sister. <laughs> but um, generally, you know, a really thoughtful child, yeah. and um, we we miss that. So, Jerry, Dad, you were the primary caregiver. What did you notice that there might be something wrong, and how did it all progress? Well, Tash complained about a pain in her knee, and I think like... Um, a lot of parents who have uh, yeah, children around that age, you think it's just some kind of you know uh, growing pains, perhaps. 
So we never suspected, uh, you know, cancer at that stage, and it was a bit of a shock, obviously, when we. Um, so we actually spent three years in Lagos, Nigeria, just before she was diagnosed. So she was diagnosed when we got home. Within two weeks of arriving back home, she was already starting treatment for for cancer. So. It happened very quickly and suddenly. And looking back, I think you know it was difficult for us to look at that condition more closely. Africa is quite a <laughs> remote location; not the best medical facilities. You know, it's one of those things that we uh, that I have you know we've dealt with. Is could we have done more? Could we have you know caught it earlier? It was hard to tell that though, because she was a she was actually very active. I mean, she played football she you know she was playing soccer she was running all the time and you know she could easily have just banged her knee somewhere but was the medical advice reassuring that you couldn't have done more that you know surely that wasn't a, a guilt that you would, yeah. would have to carry i think you're always going to have some regret you always think you know you it's, always it's wonder that, that process of yeah. um Denial or anger, I guess, you know, those those grieving processes that you will always look back and think, could you have done something different? I think we, we you know, at this stage we're at peace with that. And I think uh, it was just something that that we could not have anticipated, and it's, you know, it just was something that happened. And yeah. as a, she was already a teenager, a young teenager. What, what was her reaction to, to finding this out? Uh, well, she was kind of in shock initially. I think anyone would be being told at the age of 14 that you have cancer. It's not exactly the first thing you want to hear, especially when you've moved back to a new country and you're starting at a new school and it's all fresh and different. I do remember talking to her about it and asking her what she was feeling and she said, I don't know what to feel about it because it doesn't feel real. At the moment, this was before she'd started treatment. But I think once she started treatment, she it did really hit home for her how serious this was. Going through chemo and losing her hair especially was a massive impact on her. She was one of those people who took great pride in her hair. She had these amazing curls and she used to get up really early in the morning before school so she could wash her hair and then let it dry on the back of the couch while she sat there and you know, kind of dozed before I would come up and tell her that we needed to leave. So I think that the physical changes that were brought on by the treatment were what really brought home to her that this is happening, it's real. I think like any teenager, you go through realising that life is quite fragile sometimes and she was depressed about it for sure. But she relished in the normalcy that I could bring home to her from school. So things like complaining about, I don't know, boys or uniforms or homework. I think that helped to mitigate some of the emotion that comes with being treated for an illness like that. She sounds like she was advanced for her age, Ellis, like she was more mature at 14 because you obviously got on very well with her. Yeah, most of the time. (laughs) Like any siblings, we had our differences. We were very close in age. We were only about a year apart. We were also very similar, so we were very stubborn. We argued all the time because both of us believed that we were right. She was incredibly smart. She knew how to argue back. But she was incredibly wise 
even for a 14 year old at that point to the way that she processed it and the way that she dealt with things in the two years that she was being treated was probably one of the most graceful things I think I've seen in my life. It was something that I think would put some adults to shame (laughs) in the way that she dealt with it, which was very understated, always looking for a silver lining if she could find it. Angela, how did that silver lining disappear in the end? I mean, did she understand that not much could be done? Did she understand what was going to happen? Yeah, I think she absolutely understood what was going to happen and what was likely to be, you know, the progress of her condition. We never made a secret of that with her. We always had the conversations with her. I think, you know, I kind of look back on that time and I, I think when the diagnosis was, the prognosis was that we there was nothing else we could do and really it was now just a matter of time. I think there was probably three weeks in there when I remember we were just all really quiet at home and really depressed and the curtains were drawn and, you know, not much was said. And then I think... Without actually saying it, we kind of all got to the point of, well, this is a terrible way to be and we need to be doing things and looking for something other than, you know, uh, what we want to hear. (laughs) It's not going to happen. And I think that's when we started to find things to look forward to, to hope for. Tash was very aware of what was going on and I, I think the palliative care service really her doctor really helped with that because she was able to speak one-on-one with her palliative care doctor we were not there for those sessions necessarily she was pretty articulate she knew what she was talking about and that's where it might be different from a much younger child but you know she had questions and she needed to know and she needed someone to talk to her quite openly about it we also had a psychologists come in and see her at some of those points to help that process and help her process what was going on. So I think that made a huge difference. I mean, she knew and, you know, we we tried to make that available to her. But I think after that point, we then, as a family, started to focus on whatever we could do and, and hope is just a strange thing, but when you're in the throes of the diagnosis and trying to get treatment, you hope to get home. Everyone hopes to get home, (laughs) you know, out of the hospital, back into your own home. Everyone hopes for a cure and that you're going to put this all behind you in three months, six months, a year, just put it all behind you. But when you know that's not going to be behind you, you then look for, you hope for other things. And for her, it was, you know, the big thing for her was managing pain. That was a promise we made her, that we would not let her be in pain. You know, I was quite prepared to do whatever it took to make sure she was comfortable. And she wanted to be at home, which was the other thing that we made sure we did, was to have her at home with her dog, with the family. You know, we regularly had a dozen people in the house at afternoon tea time, Right up to the time she passed, we had a dozen people in our house getting ready for afternoon tea, making cups of tea in the kitchen and 
and being in and out of her room. So I guess that's how we we got there and our friends rallied around. We found things to do. I mean, we at one point she was talking to me about the things that she liked and she was talking about books that she was reading, movies that were being made that she hadn't seen the next episode of. And, and suddenly she stopped herself and she actually said, wait, am I going to be here when that comes out? She was talking about Christmas and how special Christmas was for our family. You know, Ella will be doing the tree. There'll be lots of food. You'll be in the kitchen. And then she stopped and said, well, will I be here at Christmas? And how do you, you know, as a parent, how, how do you answer that kind of question? I just said, well, I don't know, but we don't have to wait for December to have Christmas. So we ended up organising Christmas in July and 70 people in the house with a snow <laughs> no machine. <laughs> no, snow machines going in the backyard, food everywhere, people setting up, you know, candy bars and Tash doing lots of shopping online with Peters of Kensington. <laughs> so and that Santa. Could, we had Santa too. And we had Santa, yeah. So we had and, – and in that way, that actually, I think in reflection, gave us about two months – when the whole family and all our friends were just busy and focused on something other than the prospect of what lay ahead. And it was a positive energy. We had a big party. We had an enormous party. So you started to make the memories right there. Yeah. Yeah. Did Tash, um, Jerry? have different questions for you, do you think? Do you think she had different conversations with you? I spent a lot of time with her, of course, because I was looking after her and uh, Ella was at school, Angela was at work. So I spent a lot of time reading to her. But in all that time, especially from the time that she was, palliative care started to take over and uh, we got the, the worst diagnosis, she never complained. Only once I remember her saying, Dad, um... Why is this happening to me? And I could not answer it, of course. I said, I don't know. I wish this wasn't happening. <laughs> but she never really, you know, she was never, oh, she's not problematic. You know, she's just, she just kept a very calm demeanor, never really broke down. She lived a different kind of life from the rest of us. She was awake at night. So we were all asleep and she would be awake. Uh, I think one of the songs that she identified with was um, The Sounds of Silence by uh, Simon Garfunkel. And you know, and whenever that's played, I can imagine her being late at night, you know, thinking those, those thoughts. So she lived a slightly different time from us. And that time also I was reading a lot to her. She had a, a set of books she, she really loved called the Auburn Newton series by Isabel Carmody. I was actually reading, going through that, the whole series of books. She had read them, but I was going to read them to her again. She just wanted me to read them to her. So that's what we spent time doing during her waking hours, or at least my waking hours. And then, you know, Angela did something remarkable, which she, she can describe, I think, in reaching out to Isabel. The author? Yeah. So... When this question about, well, will I be here, right, for the next book came out, the last book of that series hadn't come out, 
the last Tolkien movie, uh, the Hobbit movie hadn't come out. I ended up writing to a number of these authors and filmmakers and just just off the the internet, just writing to them and just saying, well, look, here's the scenario, here's the circumstance and this is the question and is there any way you could see a way to sharing with her what is there, yeah, and even though it's not publicly available yet, so that she gets that sense of closure on some of this. In particular, that book. She yeah. Was, she identified yeah. You know, quite closely with the characters in that book. Yeah. And Isabel did come back to us and contact us, and she said that her team had actually pulled my note out of all her fan mail and, and said, you might want to look at this, and she did. Victorian writer um, and much-awarded children's writer, and she was in Vienna at the time, but she contacted me and said, look, I've never shared my manuscript with anyone before it's been published, so I'm not comfortable doing that, but I'm happy to read to her from it. So we ended up with these wonderful sessions where Isabel would call her and have this Skype session with her, and Tash would be in bed and she Isabel would read to her from her new manuscript. And what was the name of this man, this book? Did she even have a title for the new book? It was The Red Queen. The Red Queen. The Red yeah. Queen. So the final yeah. part in the Open Newton series. So. Yeah. So she started to read to her from it. And, of course, she did that right till the end. And and some sometimes those sessions, Tash would get tired and then they would stop. But, you know, it was a really generous thing for Isabel to do and I think, you know, we've stayed in touch since then. What was interesting was that after she'd done that, I mean, one of the questions that Tash had was really, well, what's my legacy? What's there for me? What am I leaving behind in the world when I go? Even at that age, a question of legacy. Isabel, in a sense, made some of that possible for her because after that whole exchange, and I guess reading to Tash wasn't like reading to a young child because she was, you know, highly articulate herself. And so there would be a conversation going on about characters and how things develop, storyline and so on. And Isabel actually ended up writing a character called Tash into her book and changing her manuscript. So it actually delayed her book, but there's a dedication to Tash in that as a result. And Isabel said to me subsequently, she said, what you wouldn't have known at the time was that she had her own teenage daughter in the room. And she said for them, it became a bit of a ritual as well, because she said it was her teenage daughter saying, it's time to read to Tash, you know, you need to call and So that it's just some of the things that we tried to do to try and find meaning in what was there. And some of the things that have built great memories for us, but not just for us, I think for our family, maybe for me in particular, this sense of sharing that memory with the community and friends around us so that it's not just a memory we have on our own, just the three of us, but they're memories that are shared across a network and community of people so that they also remember, and when we talk about her, they also have memories you know, and it's a shared memory. So Ella, bringing you into this, did she have different conversations with you, do you think? And, you know, she had school friends, you've got school friends. You know, how did that community 
cope with her loss or knowing she wouldn't survive? She and I did have very different conversations. We did talk about this idea of morality and the idea of death and we did have a conversation about that and it actually stemmed from Harry Potter. <laughs> we were watching the the last movie and there's a scene where Harry walks into the forest um, and he has the the resurrection stone in his hand and he turns it over and he can see his mum, his dad, his godfather Sirius and Remus and Harry asks them, does it hurt dying? And Sirius says, as quick and easy as falling asleep. And she stopped the movie and said, no, it's not. <laughs> we had this whole conversation about how the perception of death that represented in media is different from what the experience is for some people in the real world. It was very, very strange to have a conversation with a 16-year-old. I was only 17 myself at the time. But that whole idea of morality was something that a lot of our friends weren't familiar with. But I think through talking to Tash and through this diagnosis and what she experienced, a lot of them became familiar with the concept. The school that I was at at the time and the friends that I have and I still have to this day from that school were more supportive than I could put into words. They were brilliant. We had a bake sale to raise money for the Peter Mac Foundation and the school came together. I, I just asked a few people to bring something in and people brought dozens and dozens of things and we had a whole four tables filled up with baked goods to sell and people would come and buy something and it was only you know a two dollar cookie or something like that but they would donate a full twenty dollars and say keep the rest and give it to charity so the support was unreal you know having my friends come over and hang out with me and Tash and having her friends come over and hang out with us was a real sense of normalcy that I think when you're going through cancer is something that is really missed. So being able to sit and watch movies with her and my friends and talk about stupid things was probably the best thing that I could offer her. And she preferred that. She wanted me to talk about stupid things. I often felt like I, I felt a little bit bad sometimes because my issues felt so petty <laughs> compared to what she was experiencing. But she said, I need to hear about them because it reminds me that there is life outside of this. There is other things happening in the universe that that are still important, but don't have to do with my cancer and don't have to do with me or facing a terminal diagnosis. It's just, ah, your boyfriend's been terrible today. That sounds like an awful time. Tell me about it. The relationship that she and I had would have been very different to what mum and dad had with her because obviously in a position of being a carer and a parent, you have a different outlook on it. Whereas being the older sister, yes, I felt like I was in charge of looking after her, but in a different way. Yeah, I think offering her that, that realm of normal was what, what I was best at. <laughs> the, the Obviously, as, as the disease progressed, she was at home and she she died at home. What did she ask about that? As mum said, she really wanted to be home for that. Uh, she didn't want to be in the hospital during palliative care or anything like that. She wanted to be with her friends and family. Yeah, that was important. She had a little dog on her bed, you know, looking out on the garden. He was only allowed in her bed. Yeah, he, he didn't get into anybody else's bed. It was only her bed. And uh, so he was a little toy poodle, very clever. It was our first, like, real family dog. Yes, he us. came from, he came back 
uh, from Nigeria with us. Uh, That's a different which story. Which is a story. <laughs> you know, he was quite clever in that he would, he, she had a bad leg, so, you know, the cancer was in her right leg. And he would come around to her right side, look at her and say, you know, can I jump up onto the bed? And he'll, she'll say, yes, come. And he'll go around to the other side, on her good side, and jump on. Intuitive so, to the end. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was a very important little relationship. I think she wanted to stay home. And I think that's the one thing we are very pleased with, with was that we could offer her that, that we we took care. It was it was hard work looking after her and taking care of the pain, taking care of pain meds. They were not easy things to do, but palliative care obviously you know made it as easy as possible for us, which was great. And we were able to keep that promise to her. I mean, you know... He, it was still a terrible day when she passed, but she was at home. And as Angela said, we had 12 people in the house that day. It was a lovely sunny yeah. day that day. It was September the 4th. Friends had come round and I was reading to her. Yeah, And when she um, when she passed, she said, Dad, I need to turn over. And, and, and she was gone. Then she was gone. And it was very, yeah, so for her it was, you know, she was home and secure and very peaceful. I think that's the best that we could offer that's the, for her. You know, everything we could do. Yeah. We didn't have to do that in hospital or no. in some other no. place. So that, that was, you know, we're grateful for that. Yeah. And, and how would you describe how you've dealt with the grief individually and as a family, you know, each person has their own feelings, but how have you coped, Angela? Well, my coping mechanism was go back to work. For the first four, four or even five years after that, I just kept myself so busy that there was no time or space really to do much more than work and be tired and go to sleep. Work was not very supportive of her. In fact, they were demanding her return to work two days after Tasha's funeral. Yeah, so it wasn't, so it was, it wasn't it was easy. Horrible, it was a horrible experience. To, yeah. And, you know, we're, I keep thinking, well, you, know, you have to remember all the kindness and, and people like Isabel and our friends, they, they were very kind. But there are also some really nasty people out there who made things much more difficult than it should have been. We were already going through a terrible moment and they made it worse without any conscience. So there was, so there was a time when and I was really quite worried with Angela because she had no time to grieve. She, you know, I was the one at home. I had uh, spent three years in Nigeria looking after them with the intention of going back to work. But Tash was diagnosed. So all the responsibility of keeping us going financially fell to Angela. And she was doing this and having to face this at work. So I was very, very concerned about how she was going to cope with all this because she had no time to grieve. Yes, so the grieving was skewed a little bit for you, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I I think one of the things I realised, and I think in reflection all three of us realised, is that the, the grief becomes overwhelming, especially when it's very new. And one of the things we've all had to learn to do is compartmentalise how we feel and how we think. Because if you didn't do that, you wouldn't be able to do anything else, quite frankly. 
because of our circumstances, I, I needed to get back to work. I was being pressed to go back to work in quite a challenging way. We still had mortgage to pay and costs and so on. So there's not much scope there really to do anything else. That was very much my coping mechanism was to focus on what I was trying to do and achieve um, rather than the people who were there. But I think it was probably as much as four or five years on before I actually got to the point where I felt, you know, there was one day when I got off the train from work and I sort of thought, actually, I've not felt this way and I finally feel like I've got the time and space um, and things are settled enough because what people don't tell you is that something like this happens to one child and then you worry about the rest of your family afterwards. So I think we were all worrying about each other. So I was worrying about Ella. Ella went through a pretty tough time the first, the two years after that. And, you know, that's been in, that's, there've been challenges for her. I worried about Jerry because he was probably, you know, he, he out of all of us had put that personal life on hold to be with Tash. And, you know, I don't know whether he's going to say it, but he, he has not been able to go back to work. And even to the point of someone saying to him, well, you know, this gap in your resume, when women have that gap, they think they're on family duties. But when men have that gap, they think they've either been in prison or had some mental health issue. So there have been all of those challenges um, that you need to deal with on top of the grief. And we found it very difficult to continue to stay in the same house. We didn't have any happy memories in that house because we'd, we'd only ever been in that house when Tash was sick. So it wasn't a house where we had memories from her childhood or anything like that. We, we, we didn't have that. So I started travelling again for work. I think there was a real sense that we needed to get out of that space into a new space. So that was one of the things that we did. Otherwise, Jerry was rattling around in the house with the dog on his own when Ella was at college, at university, and I was you know, going to work. Did it help moving for you, Jerry? Absolutely. I think I, I might have been the one that really uh, needed that because you know, all the memories are there. The house is a bit too big for three of us. Yeah, so we, that was an important sort of move, uh, just mentally, just to, to um, sort of help clear the mind a bit um, and try to focus on something else. What other um, coping mechanisms do you think you had? I'm not very good at, at actually uh, seeking help. I think that's probably a very male thing. <laughs> I think I should have. I was concerned, of course, for the for my two girls, uh, my two remaining girls, and getting Angela out of that situation at work was important. And so we actually moved to Malaysia for two and a half years. So that would be about three years after Tash mm. passed. So in that time, uh, probably more concerned with that and you know, trying to get her get her into a good space, get Ella into a good space. She was at college. I'm still debating whether that was a good thing to send her to college straight after we lost Tash. Angela and I met in college, so we always had positive memories about that. And we wanted that for, for Ella as well. So... Going to Malaysia was actually quite a big move for the two of us. It became a very positive experience for us. We made some very good friends. 
And for the first time in a long time, we really allowed ourselves to be a bit happy, uh, enjoy life. Uh, we had some really great friends. They were, they took us out. We, you know, we 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 had a very social life over there. The only negative was that we had to leave Ella in because she was still going through university, and it was, and uh, she can probably describe the, you know how she felt about that. But for the two of us, it was important, and I, you know Ella appreciates why we had to do that. So seeking help, I was not very good at that. There were a challenge, uh, just provide you the facility to come to uh, and visit with other people who have been through the same thing. The only problem with that was that it was at the hospital. And I really didn't want to come back to the hospital again. Not at that stage, maybe in two or three years. But, you know, time just moved on. (laughs) By the time we got back from Malaysia, we moved house again. We found another house. Um, Ella wanted a dog, so we we lost the, the... Emmett, which, um, oh yeah, that was that was hard for Jerry. About a year or so after we lost Tash, our little dog developed lymphoma, and the dog <laughs> Jerry was ended up having to take the dog to chemotherapy. To as well. Chemo as well. Oh, so, so that was pretty hard. So we um, we lost uh, him after six yeah. years, which is, you know, I'd say it was just Tash. Tash saying, "I want my dog," and <laughs> and the um, dog, and so yeah. it's very much. Yeah. Connected. Very much her dog. We have a new dog called Sirius, which is very much Ella's dog. So we, we created that space again. I think you know, that's been important, coming back from Malaysia and creating that a new life for us. Mm-hmm. And Angela left that organization that she was working with, those people that were there. You know. <laughs> so that was a, a nice clean break. And uh, you know she um, could reestablish her career because she's very focused on uh, her work is very important to her and to be able to do that clear of all those uh, <laughs> stresses, the of, stresses the time. of the time and the people that were involved I, I mean unresolved anger issues I think you know, it's, you know males carry that with us it still makes me very angry that, that the way she was treated it's so just I, listened over the years I, I think I mean we were able to do it in a more extreme sense really step away from what we had been living during her illness, partly because I've I've just had a career that's taken us to different parts of the world. So we were able to do that, and then I had connections who facilitated that kind of role. But I think it just said it, it was just the importance of making a change and having a break. But I, I think in that process, importantly for I think Jerry and myself, I think our relationship got a reset not just being mum and dad, but the two of us after something as traumatic as that. And we we did learn to have fun again. You know, we, we had evenings where we went out and had fun, and we hadn't done that. You allowed yourself. We to. allowed ourselves to go and do that, and, and I think that was a really important thing. I, I think we did learn to say yes and no to things. I, I definitely felt it was important in a number of situations, to actually just say, no, I'm not doing something that the rest of the the people in the room want to do. I'm, you know, to say either I'm doing it or, and to feel okay about saying I'm not going to do it because I don't feel like doing it. And um, I think sometimes that that's difficult, I think, especially in a work circumstance. Um, 
you know, the rest of the people in your team probably want to go and do something. They want to do some team building, for example, and they think it's all good fun and it's important for the team. Yeah, but I was not in any headspace to go and do anything like that. And I wasn't going to be pressured into it either. So I think that's all about giving yourself permission to say no and that it's okay. Someone asked me recently, you know, whether we'd go back to church. We're Catholics. We're not practicing Catholics at this stage. But I had been very close to the church growing up. But I'm I'm very convinced that I, I, I don't go as a general rule because every time I go, I get very, very upset. And maybe it's just sitting and having time and space again, you know, and with that crowding in. But I, I think that's okay. And I'm look, I'm actually very comfortable that it's okay for me to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And when I do those things, like coming here today, it's going to be a positive decision. And we make the time and the mental and emotional time and space to deal with it. Yeah. Ella, you've got 10 years now. Thinking back, how did you manage your grief initially? And has it changed over time? Uh, absolutely. I think Initially, especially for probably about the first three or four years, I just didn't deal with it. I kind of compartmentalized to an extreme, I think. I really shoved it down and just pretended that it wasn't there, which doesn't work as a long-term solution. It rears its head when things get too much and you get overwhelmed, you start to really feel it. I did seek professional help. Um, so I saw a psychologist, actually, I saw the psychologist that had been seeing my sister during her palliative care, which was great because I didn't have to explain to her what had happened. She already knew, didn't have to go through the details of it. I had to work through trauma that had occurred before my sister's illness and deal with that first. And once I dealt with that, I found I had the capacity to grieve properly. I've had major depression, anxiety pretty much my whole life. And working through the emotions that come with that tied with the grief was a lot. The way that I dealt with it back then is either pretending it didn't happen or letting it build up to the point where it was unmanageable. But professional help really assisted me in giving me the tools that I needed to deal with those emotions on a daily basis. So I think about it now and, you know, it's been a while since I've seen a psychologist. It's been a couple of years, I think, since I stopped going to therapy and the tools that I have to deal with the emotions that come with grief or even just overwhelming emotions in general that aren't related to grief have equipped me to be able to function really well, which is fabulous. These days when I do feel grief or I feel sad about Tash it's in particular, which you know probably strikes me once every day at least, I think. I don't think there's a day where it doesn't, but the reaction that I have to it is different. So I I find a lot of comfort in reading, like reading books or watching movies that she and I were really fond of, especially Harry Potter. We're both massive Harry Potter nerds. Doing that really brings in a sense of peace and closeness with her. I also, she gave me her teddy bear, which she'd had since she was about seven, I think. His name is Connie she gave him to me when she passed away to look after and sometimes I'll just sit in bed with a book and hold her teddy bear and it just makes me feel okay with being sad 
it's there's an acceptance to it now that wasn't there in the years before. Early years, it was a lot of anger, a lot of denial, a lot of asking, you know, if I could change places with her, I would have. If things could have been different, how would I have been able to keep her safe or keep her healthy? A lot of questioning about the lack of control and the the injustice of feeling that she was taken too soon. Don't get me wrong, the injustice still rankles every now and then, but these days I think it's more of a, a level of this is something that has happened in our lives and it is a terrible, terrible thing to have experienced. But she would also be extremely disappointed with me if I weren't doing my life to the fullest because she would be doing the same thing. So I deal with it more these days in thinking of living for the two of us rather than just living for myself, which really helps. How have you as a family worked on keeping her memory alive? What are some of the things that that you do now that instantly someone will say something and you do it? Or is there a planned memorial? What do you do to keep that tash there with you? We, growing up, always went to Rottnest Island, which is off the coast of WA. Mum and Dad were going there before I was born, so it just kind of carried through as a tradition with the kids and we'd go with the same group of people once every two years. Tash had a spot on one of the beaches there at Fays Bay and there was a spot up the rocks at the very top where you could look out over one of the bays and it was a beautiful view. And in the rock there, someone had carved the words, Ah, the Serenity. And that became Tasha's spot. And when she passed away, ever since we've gone back to Rottnest since her death, we always go to that spot and we always visit it and have a moment of quiet contemplation and just a moment of remembering what it feels like to be close to her. She was an absolute adventurer. She loved to climb things and get into very unusual and dangerous situations. (laughs) Um, probably more so than mum will ever know. <laughs> and, well, mum needs to know. No, you, you'll be fine. And just doing things like going back to that spot or any time we have Peking Duck, because it was her favourite meal, listening to certain songs like Yellow by Coldplay or Fireflies, because I hated that song and she knew that I hated that song, so she played it all the time. Reading certain books or watching certain movies, there are just little things that you do here and there that bring you closer to their memory. I think as a family, we we do often have moments where we sit down and there'll be a situation or someone has a blonde moment and we think, oh man, Tash would have had a moment like that too. For someone who was so fiercely intelligent, she did have ditzy moments. Um, <laughs> yes. When she was a little child, she thought she was going to grow up and be blonde. Because she had a nanny who had this beautiful blonde hair. And she wanted to grow up and with hair like She thought she was going to grow up and have hair like Chrissy's. <laughs> but we used to tease her. She she was a little vain about her hair. And at one point she did say to me, yes, you know, I was rather vain, wasn't I? And we said, yes, you were. But she was very good natured about the teasing for someone who, when it came to physics and science, was absolutely up there. Um, she had some moments when it was... <laughs> But she was a big gourmet, actually. We we talked at one point, one night we sat and talked about what she might be able to do, you know, bearing in mind that she was, she'd had extensive surgery and it was very disabling for her. Um, she would have had trouble walking for the rest of her life and probably would have needed a wheelchair for most of it. So 
we talked one night and she suddenly said, oh, yes, I, I could be a food cricket. Cricket? <laughs> she, uh, she messed up the word. <laughs> she messed up. And a food critic. Yes. Yes, she could definitely have done that because uh, I think one of her, her teachers from school still recalls that Tash travelled around with a little jar of truffle salt, including to school. Uh, yeah, so every time we went out to brunch or she was at school she, and she had lunch. She would produce her truffle salt. <laughs> to sprinkle onto things, yeah. So, yes, she might not have been able to do a lot of other things, but there was nothing wrong with her palate. <laughs> food is not dissimilar to a lot of other families, but food's always been very central to our family and our get-togethers. She had a pretty discerning palate for a young person. She was never interested in the kids' menu. (laughs) I like her style. (laughs) But I I do remember her saying one day after chemo, we we used to drive through Victoria Street and pick up Picking Duck on the way through. And I remember after chemo at one time, she, she was just disgusted with herself because she couldn't even bring herself to eat Peking duck. That was like, this is... This is really bad. This is really bad. So, What are some of the things we can share with other families and what have you felt that's been helpful over the 10-year journey? Obviously, you went through palliative care, but what are some of those things that you feel are worth sharing? Jerry? I think it's kind of an inevitable part of the grieving process that you are. And straight away. But learning to let go of the anger comes with with experience, I think. I was very bad at it, but I think, as Ella suggests, uh, seeking help would have been very good. We didn't have to do a bit of travelling, so it was not that we had a consistent location where you could establish uh, a routine. You know, we were always, you know, going, having to move somewhere. You know, or moving countries. Did you have family close here? Did you have lots of friends who were part of the grieving process? We had had a lot of friends. We don't have an extensive family. Yeah, I think the the book that Isabel wrote, that whole process was good and drew friends in and it was something we shared when the book was published. You know, a lot of our friends ended up reading the books. We were able to share the books with... Others, I think the Jerry did the ride to conquer cancer a number of years. Yeah. So allowing your friends yeah. to help was very important. We had a friend who also had a close friend of theirs who lost their son to cancer, so a very similar age to Tash, and he was organising to do the ride to conquer cancer around the time that Tash was going through palliative care. So the first ride, he did it without myself, so I, I was just sort of sponsor. But in the following couple of years, I took part in that, and that helped me a great deal in finding some kind of focus, something to honour Tash a bit with. And we raised over $100,000 for... For Peter Mac. Peter Mac. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just being open to to kindness, letting people be kind, and I think that that's important. We didn't close up in our grief. We were open. We were still socialising. We were just allowing opportunities for friendships and to develop and for people to be kind. One of the conversations we'd had with Tash, or certainly I had had with Tash, was about what life would be like for us after she'd 
gone. And one of the things that we promised her was that our lives would keep going. The reality is that our family's had a wonderful life and we've done so much together. I mean, she was the most travelled 16-year-old. She'd been everywhere and done everything. So she'd had a very rich time and she realised that everything stopped with her diagnosis and, you know, we were all home. But one of the things I did promise her was that we would not stop, and that we would not stop celebrating Christmas. We would not stop having holidays or going places or doing things just because she was no, no longer there. And I think certainly in the early days that was one of the things that helped a lot was knowing that she would have been very upset with us if we hadn't got our act together and got going again. You know, whether it was a holiday or going to Rotnest or or just having people around the house and doing things. And I also think that our family's always been big on celebrating birthdays, celebrating her birthday especially. Yeah. We we acknowledge the anniversary Every year we acknowledge that it passes and that it happens and we allow ourselves to grieve on that day. But on her birthday, we really enjoy celebrating and doing something nice because that's what she would have wanted to do. And also it helps us remember her life and celebrate her life mm. rather than think about the bad times that came afterwards. It's And our, um, our friends have done that with us too. We, yeah. we've, you know, in most years we've had you know, 20, 30 people coming to dinner with us to eat Peking duck, of course, duck dinner for Tash, that helps. And knowing that our friends make the time to come and that she's remembered by them as well, even after all this time. For me, some of the work that I'm doing now is very meaningful. What I'm currently working on is uh, we're trying to build the world's largest solar farm in Northern Territory to export power. And I have lots of young engineers and scientists who work with us who are about the age she would have been and in that sense I feel like we walk in her shoes so we look for those opportunities to you know do things that we know would have had meaning to her and they help us get engaged and move on with those activities. Even from a very as a very young child she she was very attached to Angela as as a kid. Often and, literally. Uh, literally, literally attached. Hanging you know. off my leg, yes. <laughs> and her dream was to go to work with mum. Yeah. So you can Bring take her to work every day with you. Yes. I think we do. And in that sense, I feel like we still, even after 10 years, we, we live with her in our hearts every day. There's a bit of her with us every day. You know, like the necklace that I'm wearing today, that was actually what she was wearing the day she passed. These are little things. They don't overwhelm us every day, but we take, I take comfort from it. I take comfort from the fact that for many years I had a pair of her shoes in my shoe cupboard. I, had, I still have a shirt of hers hanging in my wardrobe. And those are little things, but they, they give us comfort, you know, that she's still there in our hearts and in our minds as well. You hiding something, Ella? You want to tell us about? <laughs> I, I've done many things. I do everything pretty much in mind with Tash, because you know, growing up and going to Nigeria and everything, we did everything together. You know, venturing out into the big world and going to Nigeria, be it walking around London by ourselves or walking around Spain by ourselves, or 
getting into all sorts of mischief that mum and dad will never know about. All of those things I still do with her in mind. I, the necklace I'm wearing is her handprint. I have tattoos that I've gotten in honour of her, much to mum's chagrin. You know. I hope it's not a peeking duck. <laughs> no, no, I have roses for her. She loved to draw roses, so I have, I have roses. And for other families, it's just a matter of carrying them with you in the little things that you do. And you can find meaning in the smallest of things. And that helps because you feel like you're doing them in honour by having that meaning. And I think the other thing, having been down, you know, the 10-year road, is that there's no time when that needs to stop. And I think sometimes people who haven't been in these positions think, oh, well, it's been a year, it's been two years, it's now five years, well, surely that's long enough. I don't think that ever, I don't think there's that sense of time. Time just changes when you're trying to deal with something like this. It's just... You know. Yes, perhaps your grief is, has changed into something else, but it's still It's still there. there. It's still there. And I don't think it'll ever go away. And, I, you know, so I think people shouldn't allow other people to suggest that there's a right time or a right way or probably just having that confidence in yourself and what you know is right um, is probably the way to go. No one can tell you what the right answer is and... If the right answer for you is to keep something in your cupboard for the rest of your life, I mean, that's that's absolutely fine. Jerry, you agree with that? Absolutely. Don't have too many expectations of other people. They won't understand what you're going through. And, you know, it keeps us very close as a family because the three of us understand what we've been through and always will. So... Be a bit forgiving if your friends tend to forget some things. You know, our friends are greatly supported, but, you know, naturally they're not going to understand what we've been through. I remember, I think it was Nick Cave was talking about when he, he lost his, some of his kids and saying, you know, the worst thing people say to him is, um, we can't even imagine what you're going through. Well, really, actually, every parent understands what you're going through, but we've actually gone through it. And it puts us in a in a different space. So try to find what what helps you get through. For each of us, has been different. It's a different path. Also, you know, we're thinking about the the, the five stages of grief, or so. You know, and uh, thinking is it's not sequential. You know, you go you go through all that. Probably after ten years, denials probably diminished a lot. Uh, we can't deny what's happened. But you still go through those those things, you know, depression, anger, acceptance, you know, to varying degrees over the, over the last 10 years and probably, you know, we'll continue to do that. Well, I, I just want to thank you all for telling us Tasha's story. I think she's, she's right here with us. I can feel the vibe here and that your grief has stayed with you, but it has developed. And I'm hoping many people who listen to this will hear what you're saying and agree that it doesn't stop. There's no time frame for it. It just perhaps changes. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to the second season of the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love, 
and loss, caring for a child who is dying. The Royal Children's Hospital, together with the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and Palliative Care Australia, would like to thank the parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening.